it occurred to me that that song we sang this morning, Famous For, it, it's one of my favorite songs because it talks about all the things through scripture that God is famous for. But it occurred to me as I'm singing this song, like that God is famous for shutting mouths of lions and making way through waters, all these things. And we kind of tag them back right to stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I thought, but you know what? That's not what God is famous for in our culture anymore. You guys realize that? Emma's br Amelia's bringing me coffee, and I'm excited for it, so thank you, Amelia. Vanna White. She doesn't even know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's what you were supposed to do. That was the thing. There's my coffee. All right, so in our culture, though, God isn't famous for those things. He's famous among Christians. He's famous even among uh, Jewish followers of, of God, of Yahweh. He's famous among Muslim followers of, of Allah who trace their origins all back to Genesis. And they all point back to that same God in one way or another, even though we all have differing views of, of who that God really is. And so in those cultures, God is famous for shutting mouths of lions and making way through waters and things like that. But in our culture today, God is more famous for the weird things that are in Scripture, right? So we're in a series called How Not to Read the Bible, and we're going to have a, there it is, How Not to Read the Bible. We're going to be going through this uh, for the next several weeks, and we're uh, addressing uh, really the mis misunderstandings of Scripture and the misrepresentations uh, of Scripture within our culture so that we can approach Scripture in a way that is life-giving for us, that turns a two-dimensional words on a page to a three-dimensional encounter with God, as well as be able to share with our neighbors and our friends and our, our Facebook friends and our Instagram friends uh, that when they share memes about who God is based on the weird things in the Bible, like, hey, that's not actually what the Bible says. And we're going to tackle some of those today. So some of the strange things that God is famous for amongst our culture. Here's, I've got four laws in the, from the Old Testament. And these are things that people put memes about out on, on YouTube and places like that, okay? The first one, this one's kind of obvious. You've heard it before, but no bacon, right? No, no pork. That pork was disallowed from the diet of the Jews. But along with it was lobsters and shrimp, None of those things were on the menu, and that's just kind of weird. Uh, th there was also, though, this, don't eat owls. You're not supposed to eat owls. And I don't know why we don't owls, because like this guy says, they seem perfectly good. But it, the Bible says not to eat owls, very specifically, along with any other eagles or falcons. Uh, you're also not allowed to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And I, it was really funny when I was writing this. I wrote it down, I wrote, and I went back over it this morning. It said, don't boil a baby in its mother's milk. That's also not allowed by God, but specifically baby goats were not allowed. And that's from Exodus 23. And then here's a really weird one, and most of us in this room are probably breaking this rule right now, but no cotton poly blends, all right? You're not supposed to, in the Old Testament, you are not allowed to mix fabrics it had to be cotton or it had to be polyester, but none of those really comfortable t-shirts, guys. I'm sorry. It's cotton only or polyester only. These are the weird things that are in the Old Testament, and people get tied up in knots over them. And it's not because there's these weird things in Scripture that are way in our past that we can't understand. 
but it's really because there are these weird things that are disallowed, and yet there are some things that are absolutely heinous that are allowed. Specifically, one that we're going to talk about today is slavery. God in the Old Testament says you can't have lobster, shrimp, or bacon, but slavery seems to be okay. You can't wear cotton poly blend t-shirts, but slavery seems to be fine. So what we're going to do is we're going to tackle this subject, this difficult subject of slavery. We're going to put it through some of the things that we talked about last week in How Not to Read the Bible 1, where we learned that the Bible is not just one book, right? It's not just one type of book. It's 66 separate books written by 40 different authors with multiple editors on top of that over the period of 1,500 years in three different ancient languages. Some of that language we're still lost to us, and so we're still working and learning and doing archaeology to dig and understand. We are so far separated from the culture and the world of the Bible that it's like impossible to come to Scripture and just read it as it is and to interpret it for our lives. The Bible was never written for us. Or, sorry, let me rephrase that. The Bible was never written to us. It was written to a different culture, a different people, a different language. But it is written for us. And when we come to it, we cannot ever just read a Bible verse, like the Bible verse that says, don't eat owls. Okay? We can't just read one Bible verse and make a whole way of life on it. There's a lot of work to do to engage with Scripture. In order to receive what God has for you today, for this week, for this moment, to encounter him in real time, there's work to be done through Scripture. The point of reading that Bible, though, is not just to learn things and not to grow your knowledge and not to be Bible answer man. It's to have that three-dimensional encounter with the living God that, where we have that sense of, weren't our hearts burning within us as we heard him speak? It's not the weird stuff, though, that causes the problems. It's the hard and heinous and terrible things that we read in Bible. The things that people believe that God stands for by reading one or two verses and misinterpret who God is and what he's really famous for. To our culture, God is famous for supporting slavery. And it's terrible. Before we tackle slavery, okay, which, to be really honest, this is such a huge topic. Like, as I got into it, I was like, oh, my word, how am I supposed to preach on this in, like, 35 minutes? And not only preach on slavery for 35 minutes and make a good biblical argument, biblical case, but give you something that you're supposed to go home with and hear, you know, have that heart-burning moment. How am I supposed to tackle all of that and all of our culture's, like, ideas about who the church, how am I supposed to do that in 30 minutes? And I've tried, and I have no idea if we'll make it. Sorry, I'm going to really try. But you know what? I get you one, tight one day a week, one hour a week. So I'm going to give you what I can today, all right? So to encourage us, before we tackle this tough, tough issue of slavery, I wanted to give you a really encouraging quote. Okay, you guys ready for this? A really encouraging quote. It's not from the Bible. It's from somebody who's read the Bible. And this is what they say. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here in a second, I think. There it is. I fell down on my knees. Where, where did it go? Oh, there it is. And thanked heaven from an overflowing heart of gratitude for granting me the good fortune of being permitted to live at this time. I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. 
Isn't that encouraging? Wouldn't it be great to just have a passion for something that's, that's real, that passion for, for God's work, to f- have this sense that the Almighty God has pointed his finger out upon you and said, your thing in life, your one thing is to do this. And when you're doing it, you just bring pleasure to my face. And then you just do that with this overflowing sense of gratitude. Wouldn't that be great? The problem with this quote, now that's encouraging, but the problem with this quote is who wrote it. Next slide says, Adolf Hitler. Oh, wow. (laughs) Slightly less encouraging than it was a moment ago, isn't it? Slightly less encouraging. This quote was written by somebody, though, who had read scripture and who was acting according to his interpretation of Scripture, and he used the Bible. Hitler would go on to cherry-pick Scripture after Scripture, piece by piece, little bit by little bit, out of context, misuse it and abuse it to justify the murder of six million Jews, men, women, and children, homosexuals, and handicapped people. He did this out of what he conceived to be a Christian worldview. And that's problematic, isn't it? It's problematic. Because what this teaches us is that there is no end to the evil humans can commit using Scripture if we choose to cherry pick it, if we choose to misread it, if we choose to take it out of context, if we choose to not do the hard work of reading within context, of reading the whole books, of getting the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation, to understand the big picture that God's working out in the world. It's been done over and over again. It wasn't just Hitler. The Crusades were backed by copious scriptures. The Spanish Inquisition was used to justify the torture and murder of thousands and thousands of people accused of being infidels or witches or warlocks or whatever. They kind of missed the whole love your neighbor as yourself, bless your enemy instead of cursing them, right? They kind of missed part of it. And then even in our country, there's this great stain and shame that lives over all of us, even to this day, affecting our relationships across the country, affecting our political structures, affecting our elections, and that's that evil of our history of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th and 19th century. This might be really uncomfortable to talk about, and you guys are a little quiet, a little reserved, and that's okay, I understand. Because I said the word slave, it already brings up some political thoughts, right? We've already got some, some biases in our heads, and some of us have brought up history and images of the past It's okay, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to wade through the uncomfortable because I believe when we get to the other side, there's going to be something really beautiful for us. So slavery, when it was legal in our nation, the Bible was actually used to support it, just like Hitler used the Bible to support his beliefs about uh, homosexuals and, and Jewish people. In fact, if you were to go to church in the South in the 1800s, it would actually be preached on at church which is really strange because we hardly preach on it at all anymore, but it was like a common topic in church in the 1800s. Here's a quote from a Presbyterian pastor. Presbyterians are pretty great people nowadays. They're very much just like us without clapping, okay? They're just like us without the clapping. Uh, Presbyterians, in, in 1861, Joseph Wilson, a Presbyterian minister, a great picture. Doesn't he look like a nice guy? This is what he said. It's surely high time that the Bible view of slavery should be examined. If we just stopped right there, it would be like, yeah, it is high time you did that. Why? You should get on that. 
He says it should be examined and that we should begin to meet the infidel fanaticism of our infatuated enemies upon the elevated ground of divine warrant for the institution we are resolved to cherish. I'm glad I don't preach like that because I was confused by that sentence just listening to it. But you read it over and over again, and here's what you get, that this guy reads the Bible and says, look, slavery is absolutely fine, and it's time to tell the people in the north that although you're against slavery, the Bible supports slavery. God supports the institution of slavery. See, they didn't just whip up this idea that slavery was okay. They read the Bible. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because it makes you think, what things do I read that maybe I'm missing the boat on here? What things do I read in the Bible that maybe I'm misinterpreting? They would read the Bible. They would read verses like this, Exodus 21, 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. The, the, the assumption seems to be that God of God is that you are going to buy slaves. That's what they were going to do, right? In Leviticus 25, not only does he seem to assume it, he tells them your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy them. You may buy slaves. God's like, gave them permission. Then you, that sounds like, oh, I guess the Old Testament. The Old Testament is outside, totally different after Jesus. All right, well, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Titus 2, 9, the pastor of the church is to teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. The 18th and 19th century people didn't just invent slavery, guys, and they didn't invent their support for it. They read Scripture. They read Scripture. And we may think, okay, that was then, and we've abolished slavery, and this is now. And you may think, well, this isn't a big deal for me, but it is a big deal for culture. It is a big deal for the world outside of us because they look at the Bible and they said, this cannot be a moral book, it cannot be a moral guide, and it cannot be a connection to God if God is the sort of person that would endorse and allow slavery. It can't be. We see memes like these ones up here. Like God could have banned shellfish or slavery. Shellfish. He chose shellfish, right? Could have banned slavery or bacon. He chose bacon. And those are funny and they're tongue-in-cheek but this is how people see God, the God of the Bible. And it doesn't just stop there. You have people that are even more sincere digging in and they pull out the scriptures. Here's the next one. There's a list of scriptures from the Old and New Testament and this little thing down here at the bottom, I blew it up. It says, Christians, you didn't know that Christ did not speak out against slavery? Why would anyone in their right mind provoke an institution which supports slavery? Christianity is a danger to society because it teaches normally moral people to think or act in immoral ways. Christians, how do you explain away these immoral Bible verses? The road to atheism is paved with people who read the Bible. And it gets worse. It gets worse. Because it's not just a problem of the past, and it's not just a problem of uh, atheists or people who are leaving the faith or who are confused by Scripture or don't know about how to read Scripture, who are asking these hard questions or who are misusing or misrepresenting Scripture, but it's in the church today, too, even here in the United States. This is a picture of a man. His name is Stephen Anderson. He is a pastor in Tempe, Arizona, currently. And this is from one of his sermons. He says, if the Bible condones slavery, then I condone slavery. Because the Bible is always right about every subject. 
This man is banned in multiple countries around the world for his misogynist, his racist tones, and his support of slavery, even today. But this is what the world sees of Christians. This is what the world thinks about the Bible. And we've had a part to play in that, that view in the history of the church because it has supported slavery in the past. So what we need to do is we need to take this, uh, this, this topic of slavery head on and, and put it through the grid that I taught us last week and see if we can find that possibly God has something different to say than we think he has to say about slavery through Scripture. God in Scripture is systematically dismantling slavery if we read it closely. I want to be really clear before we tackle the passages. Slavery is evil. Everybody say it with me. Slavery is evil. Now everybody say, Pastor Jamie thinks slavery is evil. <laughs> Pastor Jamie thinks slavery is evil. Right? Okay. Slavery is evil. Uh, that's, the big, that's the big picture thing I want you to take away today, okay? Christian theology does not support slavery. Pockets of it have throughout history, but the big arc of church history and tradition is that slavery is evil. Taking another person against their will and forcing them to be property of somebody else, that is very good. Being so impoverished or threatened physically that you are left with little to no choice but to sell yourself into servitude is being so afraid for your life or so poor that you physically have to sell your body to a man for his pleasure is evil. Slavery in all of its form is evil. And God has been systematically dismantling slavery in all of its forms since the beginning. So let's look at the grid that I taught last week. Number one, the Bible is a library, 66 different books. It's a big arc, big story. There's stuff going on in the beginning and going on in the end. It's one big story. There's 1,500 years of history, 40 authors, but there's really only one author, and that's God. And if you look at the larger story of the Bible, and you start in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you would see that God did not invent slavery. It was not existent in the beginning of creation. He created people, men and women, and in his image he created them. And when he gave them that title, image bearers, the Imago Dei, they were given a, a, a value, they were given dignity, they were given worth, they were given work that was of value to the world, and it was good. And he didn't make them slaves. In God's eyes, every person, every human throughout all creation matters equally. He loves them equally. There is no hierarchy created in creation. And if you want to see the big arc, it starts there. And guess what? In, in Revelation chapter 24, it ends there. It ends in a garden again where all the nations are coming together and they're bringing the, the wealth of their culture. We're not talking about money. We're talking about everything that is good about their culture. And they're bringing it and they're sharing it together before God in this feast. And it's this wonderful story of everybody being equally loved and equally honored and equally equally cherished by one another and by God. That's where the story is going. God did not create slavery. People created slavery. It's after the fall. So again, big arc, God creates, then man turns away from God right at the beginning of the story, and it's after that point that suddenly slavery becomes a thing. 
We see slaves being used to create the Tower of Babel. We see slaves being used, the people of God being taken slave. We see Abraham using slaves to have children. We see slaves popping up all through the story, but God didn't institute it. God didn't create it. People did. It's not introduced as a good practice. It's never said, oh, that was a good idea. That God's not going, why didn't I think of that? You know, I, I should have come up with this idea. God didn't come up with the idea of selling slaves and buying slaves and abusing people to suit their needs, using power to enrich themselves rather than for the good of those around them. God didn't create it. People did. Second, that the Bible is, not written, is, written, is for us but not written to us. When I read these passages, I have to assume that it was written to a different world than mine. So this is a great place to, to look at that. This was written to a, these were written to a Bronze Age culture that was incredibly violent, incredibly, there was a huge difference between the poor and the rich. There was no middle class. You were either impoverished or you were wealthy. Few people would kind of float between the two, but most people kind of flirted with having to be a slave. When we think about these passages, what comes to our mind is the transatlantic slave trade, right? We automatically conjure up images of Africans in chains being beaten. We, 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 we uh, conjure up images of people tied to poles. I think there's some pictures uh, or some more memes of, of passages that show up here. But yeah, there you go. The Bible says it's okay to beat your slave as long as he doesn't die. I mean, these are the images that we conjure up when we think of slavery. And this is what culture thinks of too. But the slavery that we experience in the Bible is extremely different. The forms of slavery that happened in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both of those were completely different from one another. And I don't, I want to be real careful. I want you to hear me say this. Again, Pastor Jamie says slavery is evil. Because it's different than what we think of does not make it good, does not make it right. But it does make it different. And we need to be aware that when we're reading this, we're reading about something different. In the Old Testament, around the time of Moses, the word slave really meant servant. Now, we use the word slavery because there was a transaction of property. There was a, a bill of sale, and your life belonged to somebody else. But people in Moses' day that were slaves were mostly servants. And frequently throughout modern translations, we'll swap the word slave for servant because we understand a servant, right? We understand on a cruise ship the steward who comes and changes your bedding or the, the, the waiter at your favorite restaurant who brings you food or that person that magically shows up at your house and cleans your kitchen. Now, that's your husband. That's not a slave. That's different, okay? Just to be clear. I mean, so in the, the Old Testament, that's what, that's what these slaves mostly were, were servants, and they weren't treated poorly. Uh, in fact, frequently, slaves weren't taken from somebody else. Like we conjure up the transatlantic slave trade where you have uh, white Europeans showing up on the coast of Africa, working with tribal leaders who are warring with other tribes to go out and steal whole villages of people and then to bring them back across the, the world to sell off on the, the other coast. That's what we think of. But in Moses' day, a lot of people found themselves in places where they had to sell themselves into service in order to survive. They would say, I will serve you. I will work for you. I will work your fields. I'll work in your house, whatever, uh, in order to eat, okay? They would, and, uh, and this wealthy person would take people on who were poor in their cities and in their neighborhoods, and they would bring them on, and they would, they would feed them, and they would house them, and they would care for them. 
Sometimes it got really bad, and this still happens today, where families were in such desperate positions that their children couldn't even eat. And so they would sell their children into slavery so that that person would take care of their children, that they would feed them and give them a future and that they would survive. It was better to, to, to become a slave, a servant in a house, than to starve in the desert. In fact, that's the very words we hear the people of Israel saying who were slaves, who God rescued and took out into the desert, and now they're out in the desert and they're facing this horrible wilderness. And they said, why did you take us away from the flesh pots of Egypt? Flesh pots, it was like, you know, stew. It's like these big vats of stew. Why did you take us away from all of our food and provision and housing to take us out here in the desert to die? That's what they were asking. But God doesn't approve of these forms of slavery. Instead, God enters into these stories and says, wow, this is a system that's going on, and for some people it's the only way they're going to survive. What we need to do is change the system. We need to make it so that people are protected and cared for. So in Exodus 21, God makes provisions for somebody who has a daughter that they have to sell into slavery. Exodus 21 goes on to make all these provisions and rules. He says, look, if she comes into slavery, if you sell your daughter into slavery, she's not to be kicked out of the house, ever. And if the master looks at her and says, oh, you're beautiful, I need a wife, and he decides to marry her, but then later somebody prettier comes along, you can't just throw her out on the street and marry somebody else. No, divorce is wrong. And you need to care for this woman, and you need to feed this woman. And if for some reason you go way off the rails and you decide, that's it, I'm done with this gal, and you do want to kick her out, you need to send her with provisions of food and an income and wine and all the things that it would take to survive in this world. You need to set her up for the rest of her life. God steps into slavery and says, look, it exists, and it's not good, but let's change the game a little bit. The things that God says about slavery in Exodus 21 are unheard of in the ancient world. Crazy talk, that's what people would say. Crazy talk. You Jews, you're crazy if you believe that God would do this with a slave. God is not saying, go and sell yourself or your children so that you can make money. He is working to protect people in the Old Testament. The New Testament is even more different, though, than the image we have. In the New Testament... 30 to 50% of the population of the Roman world were slaves. And again, it's the same situation. These people would be servants. They would be workers of vineyards and houses. But even more than that, they'd be educated. Doctors and lawyers were most often slaves. I'm sorry, Luke. He is a lawyer. He would have been a servant. So somebody wealthy would have said, you know, it's expensive getting your law degree. I will pay for your law degree, but you will represent my family for the rest of your life. And if he was a really good guy, he would also allow Luke to use his services for people in his city. As a good citizen, he is helping others by providing this slave, Luke, who is a great lawyer, to help them get out of trouble. Doctor, the same, the same thing. If you were having a baby, it was likely a slave that attended you. They were not beaten. They were not cursed. They were not hated. They were a part of society by and large. Uh, slaves were often treated as parts of family. They were even paid, and they were treated as human beings. Slavery in the New Testament was not race-based. You could be any color, any nationality, from anywhere in the world and be a slave. It was all about service to somebody who was wealthier than you. 
And yet even in that system, which is so different from the ancient system in Israel and so different from 1800s Georgia, God was working to dismantle the system and bring real change. So we're not dealing with the same sort of brutality and horror that we saw in the 18th and 19th centuries here in the United States when we read about slavery. But that answer by and of itself is an easy way out of dealing with slavery, right? It's just different. It was different in the Bible. We can't support it from that, but that's just the easy way out. So we go a little deeper. We're going to nuance this a little more, and we're going to say, hey, we should never just read a Bible verse. Because when we actually read the passages that we've mentioned before and we look at what's going on around it, we see that God is systematically dismantling slavery and bringing real change to our world. We must read the text around the verses. The assumption of both the Old Testament and New Testament is that slavery is wrong. Uh, in Exodus 21, this here, here it happens right here, Exodus 21, 16. This is right where God says, when you buy a slave, he says this, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. If you steal somebody else and make them property, you're to be put to death, which is often, you know, it flips the story, right? Slaves are the ones whose lives have no value. They're the ones that we can buy and sell and trade. Their life has no worth. God says anybody who steals somebody else needs to be put to death. And that's violent and hard, and God ordering somebody's death is difficult for our culture to wrap around our brain, right? But we're going to talk about that later. In the New Testament, God says this, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, the law, the Old Testament law, is made for the righteous, not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers. And he goes on to name who the lawbreakers are. Ready? Slave traders, liars, and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The assumption of the New Testament is the slave trade was against sound doctrine, against the will of God, against God's heart. If we go on and we take these passages we look at, uh, we see God dismantling things. Exodus 21, 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But if you keep reading, it goes on to say this. After the sixth year, guess what? The slave goes free. At no cost to the slave. The slave does not buy himself out of servitude. He's just free. He gets to go his way. In the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. And not only that, but this is where pro the prohibition of stealing people and making slaves comes in. He's like, you can't just keep stealing people and making slaves and then setting them free. That's not how, how this works. And then when this, this passage about a man selling his daughter, and he says there's different rules for that. Again, it, it makes rules to ensure that people don't become sexual property so that the innocence and purity of people is protected because it's, because it's good and made by God and he cares. God says, I see your culture. You buy and sell slaves. It may even be necessary, but let's protect people. Let's change the game. The big story of God shows God moving people away from slavery. So that goes from the Old Testament uh, forbidding of slaves being kidnapped or killed. Um, he even says if you abuse a slave to the point that he's going to die, then the slave owner is to be put to death. The chattel slavery that we imagine in the 1800s, God would have a lot to say about that. Exodus also, uh, Exodus also says that when you release a slave in that seventh year, it makes the assumption that you will release him. It says you pay him. You give him money. You give him livestock, which represents a future. You give him food, and you give him wine. And not just any wine. 
it's really clear. He's like, you don't give him the three-buck chuck, okay? That, that $4 bottle you found at Costco, that's not what you give him. You go and you get the 74 Rothschild out of the wine cellar and you hand him a case of that, okay? You give him the good stuff. You show him honor. You give him his due. In the New Testament, we see things changing even more. And there's this whole book of the Bible called the book of Philemon. And if you've never read it, you should read it. it it's, it's so small, it doesn't even have chapters. Okay, it's just verses. So it's a shorty. You can go home and read it today. And here's the story and how it goes. Okay, Onesimus is, is one of the two characters. It's Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave. And he served his master Philemon in his house. We don't know what he did, but we do know that he was not mistreated. And if you read the text and you read between the lines and you read what scholars have to say about this, they believe Onesimus ran away. This is what he did. He ran away from his master, not because he was being treated less than human, but because Onesimus got greedy and stole money from his master. So he went and he got into the bank account and he cleaned the guy out and he took off. And he's running for his life. Now, isn't this just the way of God? So Philemon, this runaway slave, is running for his life. He gets super far away. He's in a whole other country, and he runs into this guy named Paul. Paul's the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, right? Paul is a pastor. He's a, he's a leader. He's a church planter. And he runs into Paul, and Paul gets to know him. And guess what happens to Onesimus? He meets Jesus. He has a heart-burning encounter with a living God, right? And he is utterly changed. His heart is broken, and he's like, I've stolen all this money, and I've ran away from my master, and what the laws would say is that I should die. If I go back to my master and make this right, he will kill me. And Paul says, well, well who's, who's this guy you're running from? And he says, his name's Philemon. He goes, Philemon? Back in the city of Colossae? You know, the, like, would be like for us saying, like, back in Seattle? And he's like, Yes. You're kidding. He goes, no, I'm not kidding. Why? He goes, I know that guy. He's a buddy of mine. Not only is he a buddy of mine, but he was also a benefactor of the church in Colossae, one of the first church planters, and he supported it financially and cared for the church and was one of the leaders in the church, and Paul knew him intimately, and so Paul writes him a letter. And here's what he says to Philemon. Perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is, a very, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man, as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. Paul's teaching here and the teaching of all the New Testament is to urge Christians to welcome one another across social and economic and racial barriers, insisting that when we do this, that we become a sign and wonder of God's goodness and love and his work in the world. That is the arc of Scripture when it comes to slavery, that slaves in the New Testament weren't just slaves, they were pastors. Slaves in the New Testament weren't just bodies to be used, but they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And it did not matter whether there was a bill of sale attached to them or not. It elevated all of us, not just some of us. So why is it that this is still a topic that we have to talk about? Why is this still important? 
Because the grand arc of scripture shows God dismantling slavery throughout history and throughout time in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the time of Jesus and beyond. We still have to wonder why in the world it is that slavery still exists today. When Christianity has been the dominant religion around the world for the last thousand years or more, why is it that slavery still exists around us? Any estimate that you read would tell you that approximately 40 million slaves still exist around the world. That is against their free will. They are in bondage, sometimes in chains, but they are sold as cattle. One in four of these people are children, like my 11-year-old daughter, like your son, like your teenagers. 70% of slaves in the world, 70% of this 40 million people are young women. And I don't need to prompt your imagination to why that is. Slavery generates $150 billion per year around the world. And in the church, we worry about how much, how we're going to make a mortgage payment or how we're going to take care of a building. And it's not just in the far-flung corners of the world. It's not just in China or India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or places like that. It's right here in the United States. It's right here in Washington State. These are our farm workers. These are the people that are working in factories making computers. It's labor, cheap labor. And it's also women used for the pleasure of men. What do we do with this big story of God moving us away from slavery and when we look at a world that slavery still not just exists but is thriving? What do we do with that? First of all, I think that if the big story of God is dismantling slavery, then there is still and H-E double hockey sticks, a lot of work to do. I mean, that's, I want to curse when I think about it, right? I spent this week listening to podcast after podcast of what human trafficking and slavery looks like in our world and our culture, and it's shocking, and it's horrific, and it's terrible. And I can't believe that it's living there right underneath my nose. We Christians have work to do. This isn't a job for just the, the social justice industry out there. This isn't just, you know, a, a thing that we can get kind of excited about and passionate about and just let somebody else do. We need to get informed. The scripture would just draw us to that. We need to learn what's going on out there so that we can start treating people like they're our brothers and sisters. Now, I don't want to pretend that every social justice issue is something that everybody should be passionate about because if we did that, we would all be out of our mind with like giving to every cause and every need in the world, right? And I don't want to pretend that there are not complex things that are going on underneath it that wind up in our politics in terms of immigration and, and pay and all of that stuff and what's the right solution and what's the wrong solution and which one hurts more and which one helps and uh, it's complicated. But we do need to get informed and bring our hearts to bear on this subject and every subject when it comes to social justice and loving people. We began with what God is famous for, right? To people outside the church, God is famous for saying slavery is okay, but banning shellfish. When we look at scripture, we say, no, God is faithful 
And he is famous for continuing to be faithful to his people. When I look at scripture, I say that God rescues people from slavery. He makes a way through water and barriers so that they can come to him and that everybody would know the love of God. I see that God brings life from dry bones. I see that God saves the day over and over and over again. That's what I think scripture makes God famous for. But the question that came to me for myself is what does my life make God famous for? What does my life make God famous for? When we read scripture and we see that God is dismantling slavery, when we see that God is rescuing people, when he is working for the poor and the needy, if we want God to be famous for those things, the only way it will ever happen is if we become famous for those things. Find your cause. Find the thing that God is calling you to. Because right now in the United States, when people look at the church, God is famous for crazy pastors saying that slavery is fine. God is famous for pastors who are stealing money from the church. God is famous for pastors who are having multiple affairs. God is famous for hateful Christians protesting funerals. God is famous for all of the horrors of the Old Testament and the New because the church has not stood up to represent who God really is. And Christians are famous for camping. We're famous for being nice. We're famous for uh, having good potlucks. Maybe it's time for us to be famous for fighting for the needy, for going to unsafe places to care for orphans. What does your life make God famous for? That's the question that I have to leave us with. And it's not meant to be guilty. It's meant to be motivating, right? Because I'm in the same boat. As I listen to those things, I was like, oh, man, what do I do? What do I do? And I still don't know. But I'm listening. So we're going to take a minute to listen from God, and then we're going we're gonna to sing the doxology of the most, I don't know, it's just does, it's dissonant to this sermon. But we're going to sing it anyway because it tells a truth. So I'm going to give you one minute just to be quiet and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What does your life make God famous for? you stand with me? If you heard nothing else today, I hope you heard slavery is evil. 
Jesus loves everybody, including you and me. And Heidi and I love you too. Would you sing the doxology with us? This is an ancient song. We've been singing it for thousands of years, and it's really, like, just really pushes up against this whole picture of slavery. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Would you sing that with me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Go in his grace and in his power to be a blessing to the world, causing the praises of the nations to rise up to our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Right back there is these lovely little drinks we like to call Italian sodas. And they are for the purpose.